Well, good morning. Um, real interesting to see. So I, I didn't realize it was Nick. I didn't realize it was, yeah. So Nick went to the, you grew up at Holmes Baptist Church, went to the youth group there. So I was standing at the door, and you walked out, and I was like, is that Nick Kruger? And so, and then, yeah, it was. And then uh, another connection, uh, Lauren Carlton, uh, her brother-in-law, Nate McKinney, her sister is married to uh, Nate, and him and I went to school together. I went to school with uh, Anthony Crawford, uh, Duke Crawford's son. I went to faith with him, played basketball with him. So it's cool to see uh, different connections take place. Um, <clears throat> maybe isn't the best way to start, but in the Sunday school time, I said that Amber and I have been married eight years. It's actually nine. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's me. Uh, so uh, so I wanted to to correct that <laughs> before we get going. So. Um, so yeah, you can, you can uh, take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 3. Very thankful for the opportunity to continue in the, the series and the study that you guys have been going through with Scott and looking forward to being in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Uh, I've got, some, I've got uh, uh, the passage on the PowerPoint if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, otherwise, you can follow along in Titus chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1, even though we're only covering verses 4 through 7, just to get some context. Context. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I hope you noticed as we read through this, just the Trinitarian, I appreciated uh, the songs we sang, um, glory to the Father, glory to the Son, glory to the Holy Spirit, because they were all involved in our, in our salvation. I hope you kind of caught that. It's the, it's the Father, God the Father who loved us, the Spirit who works in us, and the Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. They're all there, they're all present. Each part of the Trinity, one God, Three persons, each part of the Trinity having uh, a different role in our salvation, but all of it working together in God's eternal plan. Now, you're going through the book of Titus. Now, Paul left Titus in Crete. If you look back at chapter 1, and I won't rehash very much what already has been covered in your series, but he left Titus in Crete for a couple of reasons, according to chapter 1. Verse 5 says, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So he was supposed to appoint pastors, and he was supposed to put, put what remained back in order. And that word remained uh, literally mean, could mean what is lacking. So there was something in the church, in Crete, there was something among the Christians there uh, that, was, that was lacking. It was, it was absent. Or it could even mean being left behind. So the question is, what was it? What was being left behind in that church? Now, the main themes of the book are, are, are works. He talks about good works in chapters 1, 2, and 3 several times. Soundness in faith and doctrine. He talks about our salvation. 
but he never really expounds uh, on, on sound teaching and sound doctrine, which makes me think something here about this church. I don't think this church, I don't think they were lacking theological knowledge. I don't think the, in, I don't think the issue was that they didn't have theological understanding about the gospel. I think the issue was was the influence of that knowledge in their day-to-day lives. Their minds knew the gospel, but their hearts were not captured by it. Their actions weren't affected by it. And their neighbors weren't influenced by it. Does that describe you? So when we come to the the passage this morning, verses 4 through 7, we have to ask ourselves a most fundamental question. What am I motivated by? What motivates my life? Uh, My wife and I uh, attend a, um, it's called Burn Boot Camp. It's a very, uh, it's a very rigorous training class. So there's a, there's a trainer, and then they put you through 45 minutes of just nonstop uh, lifting and cardio and all this stuff. And it's called Burn Boot Camp. But the first week after you sign up, you have what's called a focus meeting with one of the trainers. And so you go in there, and they have this sheet for you, and, you know, they take your weight, and they get your body fat, and, you know, just um, uh, uh, all that stuff. But then they, they want you to fill out this sheet of paper, and they want you to fill out two things. They want you to list why you're, you're joining or why, why you want to start exercising the way that they do things. You know, lose weight, get stronger, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and then... The next question is, is they want you to fill out what they call the deeper why. What is it that's really motivating you to, uh, you know, lose weight or get stronger? You know, and I'm, I was just sitting there thinking as we were talking about this focus meet, I'm like, listen, the older I get, like, my, my clothes are shrinking like crazy. <laughs> you know, I've got to get, get back in this whole exercise thing. Um, you know, they want to know what's going to keep you going when you want to quit. What's going to drive you? Which I found it interesting because um, I take a lot of breaks for workout. They're just they're really hard. But the other day, we were doing this exercise, and I was going super hard, going really fast. But they do this Facebook Live thing. And, like, the only time they took the video of the Facebook Live is, like, when I was seriously just, like, kind of going like this. I was, like, so tired. Everybody else is, like, working out super hard. And there's me just kind of, uh, uh, And I'm, like, of course, of all times, that's what you're going to put on Facebook Live. But, but like, they want to know, like, what is it that's going to get you through those times where you just want to quit. I think, that's a, I think you know, the, the world is asking those questions, and the Christian should be as well. What is really, truly motivating my life? What is, what is even motivating my godliness? Because wasn't that kind of the issue here? I mean, in verses 1 to 3, he talks about this godliness. Remind them to be submissive. And he says, you were once this way. He's like, here's how you should live. You should be submissive. You should be obedient. You should be ready for every good work. You should not speak evil of anyone. You should avoid quarreling. You should be gentle. You should show perfect courtesy to, our, to all people. That's how you should live. Now, what is the motivation behind that living? And he tells us in verses 4 through 7. Because you used to live not like that. Now this is how you live. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's their motivation? Now, think of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were godly people, quote-unquote. But the Pharisees thought godliness hid who they really were on the inside. Is that you? Are you hoping that, is godliness, quote unquote, religion just a facade 
to hide some sin in your life, to hide who you really are at work, to hide who you really talk about. The Pharisees thought godliness was a way to physical prosperity. We know from Luke chapter 16, they were lovers of money. And maybe, is that godliness to you? Like maybe if I, if, I, if I cash in enough godly chips with God, I can, maybe I can win a few weeks of, of ease and comfort. Maybe God will bless me financially. I mean, after I, I mean, doesn't God kind of owe it to me? You know, I've been, I've been so good lately, I listen to Christian music. I read my Bible. My goodness, God, don't you, don't I get something out of this? The Pharisees thought godly made the, godliness made them superior to others. Is your whole motivation for godliness, like remember that, 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 uh, that story in Luke chapter 18 where it's the Pharisee, and he says, oh God, I thank you, I'm not like that sinner. Is that your motive for godliness? Like, as long as I'm not like that, or as long as I'm not like that person over there, and I don't mean, I'm not doing this, as long as I'm not like, like that person over there in the other pew, or on the other side of the auditorium, as long as my kids turn out good, so that way my family looks good, and I look good, and I look like a good parent, is that the motive for your godliness? Pharisees thought godliness justified their hatred, anger, and bitterness. It sounds crazy, but how many of us think it's okay to live like a complete jerk because we're Christians and I follow God? And if we're honest, a lot of these things describe all of us at one point or another. another. But maybe you're entrenched. Maybe the gospel is something you know, but it's just you've, you've lost any sort of that lust or that, that, sort of, that, sort of, that sort of foundational motivation. It's just not there. You know, you know in your life the gospel does not have its rightful place in your life. You're weary, you're tired. And you don't have the gospel there to get you through while, yes, you're weary and tired, but there's no, there's no hope. There's, there's, there's little thoughts of God or there's, 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 there's this sort of, it seems like God is stiff-arming you. Maybe you're angry at God or whatever it might be. So I'm assuming that there's, there's some in here uh, where you know that something's been missing for a long time. And you know it has something to do with the gospel. You realize you're, you're just as grumpy as you were 10 years ago. And you're missing that joy. Or you find yourself becoming harder and harder and harsher and harsher and more angry and angry and bitter and bitter and you just, and you just, you know, you, know, you know there's something missing. That's what this message is for. That's what this passage is in here for. It's for those of you who say, listen, I'm, I'm like the Pharisees, kind of the whitewashed tomb from Matthew chapter 27. Listen, I'm a grave, I'm a grave with, an, with an appearance of godliness. I'm a grump with just enough godliness to justify my grumpiness. My gratefulness, I'm just thankful I'm not like all those other sinners. And your gratefulness has nothing to do with being saved, that God would come and choose you and save you through his son, Jesus Christ. This passage says, you want to live a godly life? Let's start with godly motivation. So we're going to look at the three of those this morning. Three motivations for gospel living. Number one, God the Father's love for us. God the Father's love for us. I love this word here in verse 4. It says, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Epiphanos, where we get our word epiphany. Just, it's kind of this idea of just this, this light cutting through the darkness. 
Uh, it's, used, uh, it's used in the book of Acts where, where, where Paul, it was dark and there's this storm and it said they didn't see light for several days. It's kind of the idea that no light appeared. Just kind of in this storm and it's all this darkness. It appeared. Now when did the love of God appear? I think there's, I think there's two answers to that question. I think one, we, we know first of all that it appeared when Jesus appeared. Because we beheld the very glory Grace and truth from Jesus Christ is the very representation of God on this earth. So that's certainly when it appeared, uh, this love of God. But I think also, at the very moment, a sinner has the eyes of their hearts open to the light of the gospel. God's love appeared. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about uh, Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers but that God is, is causing his light. so that He says he, it bl- he blinds their eyes so that their hearts cannot see the light of the glory of gospel in Jesus Christ. And so it's kind of this idea. When God's love appears, it's boom, there it is. This is love. He loves me. So I want to make a couple observations on why God the Father's love for us should motiv- us, uh, motivate us. Um, we should be motivated by the love of God because it wasn't mandatory for God to love us in the first place. Now, that might si- sound foreign to you, but we ought, should be motivated by the love of God because it was not mandatory for God to love us in the first place. Now, the word translated for love or loving kindness is only used two places in the New Testament. Um, it's, uh, it's the word philanthropia. You kind of hear the philanthropy uh, in there. Kind of the, you know, if someone's involved in that sort of thing, they're, they're, they're doing, doing loving things for mankind. So philanthropy. Phila is love. Anthropos or anthropy, that's man. So it's God's love for man. His love for mankind. Now the one other place this word is used is in Acts chapter 28, verse 2. Now if you remember Acts chapter 28, Paul is on his, his way to... To, uh, uh, to, the, uh, to Rome, to stand before Caesar. And it's Acts chapter 20, verse 2, where they get up on this land after their ship is destroyed. They crawl up in the land, and he says, and Luke writes these words, the native people showed us unusual kindness. You remember, the, the ship was destroyed. They go up on land. It's cold. It's rainy. And these native people come out, and they build them a fire, and they welcome them warmly. It's like they're kind of emphas- like Luke is emphasizing here. It's really unusual to receive that sort of kindness from a land we've never been to, from people we don't know and they didn't know us. Listen, God is love. God is love. But he is intrinsically good and loving. That means it's a part of his very nature to be good and to be loving. But here's the thing. God is free to withhold or to show his love, grace, and mercy. God is free to withhold his love, to withhold his grace, and to withhold his mercy, and he will not be any less God. God is free to show those things. He is chosen graciously to show his love to mankind in a general sense, right? He gives rain to both the just and the unjust, Matthew chapter 5. But I think the main theme in Scripture is not God's general love, like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I don't think it's, it's the general theme of scripture is not God's general love that he has for mankind in general, which he pours out his mercy and provision and general care, but it mostly is picturing God's love that he has for his own. 
God is not obligated to show even that general type of love. He's not obligated. He's not obligated to care for us and provide for us. He wasn't obligated to create us. You know, there's this kind of this idea out there that God needed to create us because there was something lacking in the Trinity where he needed us so that he could love somebody. And, and there's even, uh, there's even a, kind of a, a form of theology that says not only did God have to create us because he had to show his love, as if, you know, John 17 doesn't tell us that the whole perfect Trinity were perfectly loving and in perfect community with one another. But not only do we, does God need to show his love towards us, but that God actually needs our love. That somehow God is, is lacking in love and we kind of fill him up. That is not the God of the Bible. And this is what makes God so great. It's not a, God is not great if he's obligated to you and to me, his sinful creatures. But here's the thing. God obligated himself. God obligated himself. That's why verse 5 clearly states, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. He wasn't looking at us. He was like, I need to save that person because they've done so well or because they whatever it might be. God was not obligated to do any of this. The cause of your salvation is not you. It's God. Which is why we cry nothing but grace. This is grace. God did not have to save me. But he chose to, and God obligated himself. He made promises, and he's not a liar, and he won't turn back on his promises. He's not going to break his covenant. He is a God who is faithful. And because of that, he has set his love upon you, and it depends nothing on you, but all on grace, all on God. We are in sin and misery, and instead of God who could have rightfully destroyed us through an eternity and hell, he chose to come and save us. That's nothing but grace. Shrink to this, that God would so show such love towards sinners is not unusual, but it is unfathomable. It's not unusual. Because God does it a lot. But this is unfathomable. Which means lead to another observation. We should be motivated by the love of God because it's not mandatory for God to love us. But we should also be motivated by God's love because God's love will never shame you because of your past. And I think that comes straight in from verse 3. God's love will never shame you because of your past. He will not turn you away because of whatever past you may have. I think this is, what, this is what should motivate us. I think so many Christians live in guilt. Maybe even a false guilt. They don't even know what they're guilty for. I can tend towards that. I can tend towards just like feeling guilty, not really sure, just like am I okay, am I okay with God? Is, are we good? What's going on here? And, uh, and I mean, verse 3 says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. Have you ever been enslaved to any sin? Any sin? Any addiction? Uh, any, any, any sort of substance, pornography, whatever? Have you ever been enslaved? Well, here's God saying to you, there's not one sin that's going to separate you from my love. Here's not, there's not one sin that you have to clean up in your life before you come to me. God says, I'm going to save you, and then I'll work on the rest. 
I think you were once all these things, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, hated by others, and just hating, just a life of hate. And God says, God says, listen, I'm never going to shame you because of your past. That's why Isaiah 43, verse 25, talks about a God who forgets our sins. What does that mean? I mean, does it mean he literally doesn't know that they happen? Answer, no. He, he knows it all. As a matter of fact, in the last day, they're all going to be they're all going to be laid before us, and we're going to give an account for everything that we've done. So it doesn't mean that God just like mentally doesn't remember. What does it mean? That God forgets means that God will never let the knowledge of your sins play any part in his relationship to you. He will forget them in his relationship to you. That's the gospel. And you're sitting there thinking, well, why does it matter if I sin? That's Romans chapter, that's, that's Romans, right? Romans chapter 6. Paul was telling about the gospel, and they came up with this question. He, he anticipated the question. Well, if this grade is so grace, why not continue in sin that grace may abound? If that's where you are, you're starting to get the gospel, but you haven't gotten there yet. Because we know that the same grace that saves us changes us. That's what Titus is all about, right? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation... And then it, what else does the grace of God do? Trains us to renounce ungodliness. So it's a saving grace and a changing grace. But we have to start with understanding what happened when we were saved in God's love for us. Micah 7 verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in loving you. He loves you because he delights in it. He's not like, oh, I guess I have to love him. Like, if I don't love him, then there's no reason for, I mean, why did I create him? And that's the purpose, right? Just for me. I mean, he loves you. He loves you because he delights in it. We should be motivated by the love of God because he wants us to show this love to others. Other people need to see the love of God. A life that is motivated, motivated by a God who delights in showing steadfast love will show steadfast love to others. Love will grow more and more natural for you as you grasp this love of God for you through Jesus Christ in the gospel. It'll be more and more natural. It'll be more and more accompanied by more and more feelings. We don't start with feelings. We start with what we know. We know God loves us. We know he delights in showing us love. And then we let that bring feelings of affection, but we never let them master us. We grow in our thankfulness for God's love toward us. And we grow in intimacy with him. And then we take that love and we we show it to others. This world desperately needs to see God's love for sinners. If you take God's love for granted then you will naturally take others for granted as well. Let me say that again. If you take God's love for granted, you will naturally take others for granted as well. Your wife, your kids, your boss, your coworkers, your pastors, other people in the church. So are you motivated by God's love for you? Would your spouse say you're motivated by God's love? Number two, God the Father's love toward us. Number two, God the Spirit's work in us. This is another gospel motivation. 
God the Spirit's working in us. Now, this, uh, this phraseology here might kind of make you say, what is, what is being talked about here in verse 5? He said, he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, some people take it to mean means baptism. doesn't mean baptism. Baptism does not save you. Uh, there are not physical solutions to spiritual problems. So it's not baptism that you go and you get dunked and it washes away all your sin. That's not what it does. Baptism is a picture of what the Holy Spirit does on the inside. So he creates, and if you just look at what, 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 what the Holy Spirit does here. I mean, put simply, you are saved because the Holy Spirit did a miraculous work in your heart. You are saved because the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, did a miraculous work in your heart to cleanse the filth, to call forth the dead, and create the new. All in this, all in this little, he, he did a miraculous work to save you, the Holy Spirit did, in cleansing the filth, washing, in calling forth the dead, that's regeneration, and creating the new, that's renewal of the Holy Spirit. Look at each one of these. The Holy Spirit cleanses the filth. The Holy Spirit cleanses the filth. He washes our sin and our filth away. It's not referring to baptism. This is an inward spiritual cleansing from God. So the picture here is, is you kind of go back to the Old Testament. Remember they had the bronze basin where they would, the priests uh, and those working in the temple would cleanse themselves and wash themselves. You have all these washings in the law and all this stuff, and you're always like, why? I don't get any of this. What's going on? Well, God is, God is concerned with purity, with cleansing the filth. And these are all pictures for them to remind them that they were filthy. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. And there's, there's in, in the, the Old Testament is also supposed to picture that, listen, there is a filthiness that these people had that the blood of bulls and goats and the washings in the basin, all this stuff, could not wash away. It reminds me of my kids. I think it was like last week. My kids love playing outside without their shoes on. And I don't know if we have like some special dirt in our area or not, but they came in one day and their legs and their feet were just completely black. And we could not get it off of them it was just it was we we're like getting ready to go to church the next day or whatever it might be and it's just we we're just scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing they're probably still that way they're probably yeah so if you think our kids just they own shoes they do uh and uh they're just completely filthy in the bath with soap we literally threw them in clorox i'm kidding we didn't do that uh but uh just filthy it's like there is a there is a filthiness in your heart. And if you don't think that's true, listen to God's word. There is a filthiness in your heart and soul that nothing on this planet could ever cleanse. Baptism can't clean it. Church, church membership can't cleanse it. Communion won't cleanse it. Good works won't cleanse it. We are cleaned by the spiritual water from Christ himself. First John chapter 1 verse 7 says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Reminds you of that, that old hymn, doesn't it? There is a fountain filled with what? Blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners 
plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Your soul has guilty stains. My soul has guilty stains. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ lose all of their guilty stains. The blood of Jesus was poured out so that those who place their faith in him will never receive the punishment or condemnation they deserve for their sins. It's been taken care of, the guilt removed. The guilty party was found to be Christ. He's the guilty one. Though he committed no sin. I remember at the church I, I used to pastor, I remember talking to a neighbor of mine uh, several years ago and uh, just getting to know him and he made the comment. He's like, I don't want to go to church. And he says, I'm not interested. He goes, I just go and I, I feel so guilty. What was my response? You are. You are guilty. And so am I. And church isn't going to remove that guilt. And maybe you're feeling guilty. And maybe you're still bearing that guilt. And without Christ, you will bear the punishment for that guilt. But God is offering to save you, to deliver you from your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. doesn't matter if your name's on the church membership. It's not what I'm asking. Has your guilt been removed through the blood of Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit cleanses the filth. He calls forth the dead. Regeneration is spiritual rebirth. That's what Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? He's supposed to go back into his mother's wombs and kind of do a whole new thing there. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think we, we tend to lose the awe of being dead and then alive. Don't we? I mean, there's no, greater, there's no greater physical change one can go through than being physically dead and then being physically alive. But even greater than maybe somebody, and Jesus raised people, even greater than going from physically dead to physically alive, let me tell you, even greater, and I lose this, even greater is going from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. That's a greater miracle than going from physically dead to physically alive. And we lose it. And this is, why, this is why our testimony is so important. I don't care if you were saved when you were 4, 40, or yesterday. I mean, we need to be not only reminding ourselves of our testimony, but this is why it's also important. I think outside of the gospel, the most important tool you have in sharing Christ is your testimony. It's not a gospel tract. It's your testimony. It's your story, how you went from dead to alive. And this is why as we share our testimony, what happens? Not only are we, are we sharing the gospel with somebody, but we're also reminding ourselves. Like, wait a minute. I was dead at one point. Now I'm alive. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. He, uh, the Lord says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. So we just we need to remember that. We need to remember that. I was, uh, I was reminded of this kind of resurrecting power of Jesus the other day when I was reading uh, in my personal time uh, in uh, Luke chapter uh, 6, 7. Uh, it's when Jesus, remember, he's entering the town called Nain, and as they're going into town, there's a funeral procession happening. And 
Jesus has compassion on the mother. It's, it's, a, it's a mother who had lost her only son, and she was a widow, so her husband had died. And so Jesus comes in, and, and, um, and, and Luke, and, and, and Jesus came, and he, and he stopped it. Literally, he says uh, in that passage that he came, and he put his hand on the beer, or the stand that the, that the coffin was brought in. He puts his hand on it, and the whole procession stopped. Even the pallbearers. And we all know what happens next. Jesus raised that man to life. And that is a powerful picture of how you have been saved. Because your spiritual funeral procession started the day you were born. And your spiritual funeral procession stops when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who stops it. Which is why it's all of grace. Because just like it was Jesus who came and put his hand on the beer for them to stop the funeral procession. If you're saved, it's because Jesus came and he stopped your funeral, your spiritual funeral procession, and he raised you to life. And finally, a new creation was made. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old has gone away, behold, the new has come. The old has gone away, the new has come. So he made you, He wants you to walk in newness of life. He actually made you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We all with unveiled face, Paul talks about in Corinthians, are beholding the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, being conformed to the image of his son. Romans chapter 8 talks about that same thing, doesn't it? You know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his purpose, those who he predestined, he saved to be conformed to the image of his son. Loose translation there, uh, but, the, but the idea of being made new, to walk in newness of life, to carry the image of Jesus Christ that Romans and Corinthians talk about is Jesus shining through you. Have you been made new? Um, reminds me of the show Fixer Upper. Any Fixer Upper fans? I heard some, mm, yeah, yeah, amen, amen, Chip and Joanna. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. But uh, you know how the show works. Um, I trust you do. How are you an American? If you, no. Uh, uh, so you know how the show works. Chip and Joanna, uh, someone buys a house, and it's in terrible shape, but Chip and Joanna, they've got a plan. They're going to make this thing look great. So what do they do? They go in there, and they spend a few months, a few weeks, a couple months, whatever, and they... And they fix this thing up. And then it's the big reveal. Remember, you come to the big reveal, and the, and the picture of the old house is in two big screens right in front of the house. And then, and then are you ready to see your fixer-upper? And then, commercial. <laughs> like, come on, we all know what's coming. Uh, and, then, and then it pulls apart. And here's this new house. Is it a new house? Same structure. Same structure. It looks completely different. When you get saved, same body. Same body, uh, different person. Same body, different person. That's what the Holy Spirit does with us. Let's look at the, the last one here. Motivations for gospel living. What's going to motivate you to live for the gospel, to let it capture your heart, change your actions, influence those people around you? What's it going to be? It's going to be God, God, God the Father's love toward you, God the Spirit's work in you, and thirdly, God the Son's future for you. It's just, we have a great future because of Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, hope is not wishful thinking. 
Like, I hope it doesn't rain for the golf thing again, you know? Like, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope, I hope, uh, I hope I have a good day today, whatever it might be. Um, it's eager expectation that what God has promised will come to pass. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I trust God that whatever he has promised me, I believe it, I trust it, I'm banking my life on it. It's expectation that one day his kingdom will come and the king himself will rule with truth and righteousness and justice and equity. It's confidence that we are heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, and we know that, that as we've been adopted into God's son, if we're children, then heirs, heirs of Christ and fellow, uh, heirs of God and fellows with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We know that we are heirs of an inheritance that is undefiled, uh, in that first Peter, undefiled, unfading, it's incorruptible, it's kept in heaven for us. We believe that Jesus went and he prepared a place for us. And if he prepared a place for us, he's going to come back and we're going to go there. And really it revolves around two things that we find in this passage. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now notice, these, uh, notice this word, so that being justified by his grace, okay, because we're justified, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Two words I want to look at as we, uh, as we look at this final one here. Uh, one is justification and two is glorification. Justification is what we've already been talking about this whole message. A sinner is considered righteous. It's a legal declaration, not guilty. It's a legal debt that has been removed, paid in full. Colossians chapter 2, one of the greatest passages. Uh, we, get the, we get the final verse to it as well for my soul from there. That Jesus, but the legal debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, says this he set aside, nailing them to the cross. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. That's where your sins are if you're saved in here this morning. And if you're not saved and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's where your sins could be. If you place your faith in Jesus, nailed to the cross. And it's illegal. So justification is not just you're, you're declared uh, righteous. It's not just that you're not guilty. It's not just that you're forgiven. But it's also uh, not just that your debt has been paid in full. But it's also you've been, you've been given a deposit. So it's not like God just kind of brings you from like a negative balance to zero. God brings you from a negative balance to like all green. Because he gives you the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But God freely gives it. And that's what leads to this glorification. It's what we have to look forward to. It's something that we must look forward to. Paul said that he forgot everything that was behind him and he strains for what's ahead. It's what lies ahead of you. What are you looking forward to? Like I'm looking forward to 2020 being over. Or I'm looking forward to, you know, Whatever the president thinks is going to happen. Are, you, I mean, are we confident 2021 is going to be much better than 2020? Can anybody raise their hand and say, I am completely confident that once 2020 is over, I just can't wait for it to be over. I'm looking forward to 2020 being over. 2021 is just going to be great. Uh, it may not be. It might be. It may not be. The question is, where do your eyes stop? Where do they stop? Uh, what's in front of you, you look at, your kids, 
their future. Um, my job and its future. My money and its future. Uh, health. I've got an addiction. Their eyes are just there. That's where they stop. And it can't, can't see beyond it. When you're looking up to the one who goes before you, you won't be anxious about what's in front of you. When you're looking up to the one who goes before you, it does a great deal for your anxiety. You won't be anxious for what is in front of you. What if this happens with this election or that happens? or what, 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 what? What's my future going to look like if my health does this or does that? What happens if the liberals take over? Socialism. What happens? What happens? Do you know what Isaiah 40 says about President Trump? He's in the Bible. He is. Um, all of our presidents have been in the Bible. And all of our presidents after President Trump will be in the Bible. Uh, it says in Isaiah chapter 40, um, I think it's verse 23. It says, God brings the princes of the world to nothing and the rulers of the earth to emptiness. Every ruler that has ever lived on this planet, Democrat or Republican, king or not, whatever it might be. Isaiah 40, verse 23, God brings princes to nothing and rulers of the earth to emptiness. But Psalm 16, 11 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. God brings the kings of the earth to emptiness, but in God's presence there is fullness of joy. Listen, let me encourage you. Uh, keep looking up. Jesus will be here soon. I want to give you three final points of application as we wrap this up. Three points of application. Number one, embrace the fact that God's love is completely undeserved. Embrace the fact that God's love is completely undeserved because this will keep you from self-love. This will keep you from self-love. Number two, exhibit the Spirit's work in a way that is undeniable. Because this will allow you to hold up what is beautiful. If you watch that debate, it was ugly. Entertain, <laughs> entertaining. Uh, but it was ugly. You're just kind of like, nah, I think I'll go watch something else. But like, we have the opportunity as Christians not to lessen our stand, not to say, oh, it doesn't matter if, if uh, this guy's going to kill our babies or not. It doesn't really matter. We just got to love it. That's not, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we don't take a stand for God and his word, and we even take a stand politically. But what I'm saying is, as Christians, there's got to be something more. If your Facebook feed is only political, and it's nothing gospel, that's revealing something. And we have the opportunity to uphold what is beautiful, even as we take a stand on God's word and we oppose other views and oppose other worldviews and we oppose the murder of babies. Expect the future that God's son has for you in a way that is undiminishing because this will give you the spiritual energy you need when everything is against you. Uh, just last Sunday, I was, I was with my atheist friend, Miguel, um, at a coffee shop. And, and uh, 
we, uh, we, we hadn't met since before COVID, but we had been meeting off and on. And like I said, he's an atheist. He grew up in the Jehovah's Witness and had opportunities. And, and he was kind of asking, you know, about certain things and kind of the idea of motivations came up. And I was able to share this passage with him. And just tell him, like, listen, there's got to be something that motivates our lives. And for me, it's, it's the gospel. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. Ask my wife on another day, not today. Uh, uh, it's not perfect. The gospel is not nearly dear enough to me as it should be. But what motivates our lives? What motivates your life? Does the gospel have the rightful place in your life? Let's pray. Father, so fill us with a sense of awe of your gospel and your words that uh, we live unashamedly for your glory and for your kingdom. God, I pray if there's uh, anyone in here this morning who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, pray that even now their, their uh, spiritual funeral procession would stop. Maybe somebody online who's listening in. Uh, Lord, otherwise, use us as your tools to be telling about a man who can stop the spiritual funeral procession. We pray these things in Jesus' name.